The rest of us will be in Matthew chapter 9. If you turn with me in your Bibles this morning, please, to Matthew chapter 9. Wow, as we come to our passage this morning, uh, I'm, I'm amazed by the way that Matthew has given us these accounts, these testimonies of the work and ministry of Christ and, and his gospel as he presents Jesus as the Messiah, as he presents Jesus as the King of Israel. And as you, we go through these passages, it just seems to keep escalating and escalating. I think this morning we come to really the zenith of, of the power of Christ is put on display uh, through the account that we have before us in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. So I'd like to go ahead and just begin reading there. If you will turn with me, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to read verses 18 through 26, where it is written, While he spoke these things to them, Behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but is sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all that land. Father, we're so amazed by this story, by this working of the Lord Jesus Christ in the lives of these people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use this testimony in our lives this morning as we open your word together, that you would conform us into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ in a greater way. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning who's never trusted you, who's never been born again, God, I pray that today through this passage you would convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment and their, of their need for Christ and that they may embrace you as Lord and Savior, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in, this, uh, in these verses this morning, we find three acts of Jesus where he manifested his power and compassion to people. And actually, in these verses, they, they provide hope for us. They provide hope for all who trust and who will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what an amazing and comforting passage of Scripture we have when we really dig into these and learn what God is communicating to us. And the first act that we want to observe this morning is in verses 18 and 19, where we see Jesus restoring a broken heart. And in fact, uh, in these next set of miracles, Jesus is, we see that he restores people who society had given up on. And first of all, we uh, come to an account of a ruler of the synagogue. It says, while he spoke these things, a ruler came and worshipped him. Now, Mark and Luke's gospel tell us that this man's name was Jairus, and that he was a leading official in the synagogue. In fact, Luke uses a word to describe him that describes him as the chief official of the synagogue. He was the highest ranking official in the synagogue, kind of like the president of the synagogue. He's the guy who was in charge of the operation. He was the one in charge of uh, organizing and inviting those who would read scripture and who would teach. 
He, would, he was responsible with the oversight of maintaining the facility and the finances of the synagogue. Uh, he obviously would have been a respected man, and because of his title and position, would have been a man of some wealth. But now this man is in a situation where his wealth and his position, uh, his rank in society can do nothing for him. You know, when you go to a hospital and people are laying in beds, nobody's asking, you know, is this Bill Gates or is this Billy Bob, you know, who picks up your trash every, every week. It doesn't matter at that point, does it? Everybody is equal because you're laying there in need of healing. And so at this time, here comes a man, a leading official in, uh, in the city. Uh, he was a high, the, the highest ranking man of the synagogue. That doesn't mean he did all the teaching, but he was the leader, kind of like a, a senior pastor of a church today is given a lot of responsibilities. This man had a lot of responsibility. And I believe that he certainly knew who Jesus was because being the leading official of the synagogue, we see in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 1 verse 21 that Jesus taught in that same synagogue in Capernaum, which had become his new hometown after he was kicked out of Nazareth. And it says there in verse 21 of Mark's gospel, And the people were amazed at his teaching as he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So certainly this man was acquainted with Jesus, heard him teach, probably seeing Jesus perform some sort of miracle or heal someone. And now he is in need of help. He comes to Jesus in a moment of desperation. Why? Because his own daughter uh, has died. And so this man comes before Jesus and Matthew describes him as worshiping him. Uh, Mark and Luke tell us that he fell down at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly. He comes honoring and reverencing Christ, recognizing that only he had power to do something to rescue his daughter, to, to rescue her in her desperate situation. And Matthew actually says here that his daughter had died. Now Luke and Mark's gospels say that the the girl died on Jesus' way uh, to the house because we see here in Matthew, uh, verse 19, that Jesus uh, followed this man to his home. And some people would say, oh, well, that's a discrepancy in Scripture. Well, no, not really, because if you, if you know anything about Matthew's gospel, he, he leaves out a lot of the details. In all of these stories, Matthew leaves out a lot of the details that Mark and Luke provides because Matthew has a different objective. He's trying to present Jesus as the Messiah. He's trying to help people to see, his Jewish audience to see, that this Jesus is the Messiah. So he doesn't get buried into all the details. And obviously this man coming to Jesus recognizes the serious, uh, terminal, the terminal nature of his daughter's illness. In his mind, his daughter was as good as dead. And so he comes to Jesus pleading for Jesus to do something, knowing that his daughter is either going to die, or by the time he would get there, had died. And so the man's daughter dies, and this man was broken. Luke and, uh, Matthew and Mark tell us that his daughter was just 12 years old, and it was his only daughter. So his little sunshine was no longer shining. She had passed away. This man was utterly broken. This man had experienced life's greatest tragedy, the greatest tragedy in life, I think, is the loss of a child, right? I mean, what could be worse than losing your own child? You know, most, every parent that I would know, any good and loving parent, would give their life for their child. And this man had lost his little girl. But sometimes people don't 
think about spiritual things until a tragedy comes along. God has to oftentimes break a person for a person to humble themselves and to turn and look to God and recognize that he is sovereign over all. And that there is nothing they can do to remedy their situation. You know, a lot of people are saved in prison. You go to, you go to jails and prisons and people come to Christ. In fact, somebody uh, this past week told me that their dad got radically saved in jail. Growing up, this lady was telling me her dad would curse God and was, uh, was devilish and angry and mean, treated people horribly. But he got placed in jail and got radically saved. She's like, it's like a totally different person. And that's what happens. I remember we, had, we were four months on the mission field, maybe th- three months, uh, right after 9-11 happened. And one day we got a call from Sandy's brother. And Sandy had tried to witness to her family before he we went to the mission field. They were uh, historically Roman Catholic but didn't really practice it very much. And she had witnessed many times to her younger brother. And uh, one day we got a call from him and he said he got saved. We, we were blown away. Because before we went, she's like, you know, we're going to the mission field to take the gospel to people. But look, we're, we're leaving my family behind who's not, who's not saved. And I said, well, you know, God is able. God can save them. We don't have to be there. And so her brother calls and tells us he got saved. And he said, yeah. He said, you know, I was held at gunpoint twice in the last month. He was hanging out with all the wrong people. And then 9-11 happened. You know, airplanes flying into buildings and thousands of people died on that horrific day and God used that to jolt him to realize that he may be next and God broke him and Sandy used to tell me I'm praying that God will break my brother and sometimes God has to bring a person to their lowest point before they look to him before they call out to him before they recognize their lowliness before they recognize their smallest before in an almighty and majestic and sovereign creator And that's what happened to Pharaoh, remember? He would not let God's people go. And what did it take for Pharaoh to let God's people go? God took his oldest son, right? Yeah, he broke his heart. And he let God's people go. Well, this man, Jairus, comes to Jesus with a broken heart. And he's turning to Christ, believing that Christ can do something. And he says to Jesus, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. He believed that Jesus... Even though he'd never seen Jesus raised from the dead, he believed that Jesus could raise the dead. You know, there's a couple accounts with Elijah, and, and, and we see in the Old Testament where there was resurrection. But nobody in Capernaum had ever seen a resurrection. Nobody in all of Galilee or all of Israel or in this day and time had ever seen a resurrection. But he believed that Jesus could do something because he had witnessed his teaching. He had witnessed his miracle working. And so he comes as a broken man thinking, Jesus can do something. Jesus, if you can just come and, and, and lay your hand on her, she will live. And so he bows himself down before Christ in reverence and humility and sincerity. Now, some commentators want to make a big deal. It's like, oh, you know, he didn't have this face of the centurion. The centurion said that, you know, if you would just say the word that, you know, my servant will be made well. Well, I don't really think that's that big of a deal. I mean, uh, you know, God, you know, some people have greater faith than others. God doesn't uh, save us based on the measure of our faith, but on the object of our faith. Christ is the one that we are to put, place our faith in. 
whether it's small or great, if you will trust Jesus with your eternal destiny, if you will confess your sin and forsake them and embrace him as Lord and Savior, he will grant you eternal life. He will give you his righteousness and equip you and prepare you to enter the kingdom of heaven. But you must first believe that he came, that he died on a cross to pay the price of your sin, was buried, and three days later victoriously rose, conquering sin and death and Satan. And that if you trust him, he will give you eternal life as the one who is the life giver. And so this man comes before Jesus believing that Jesus can give his daughter life. He didn't just believe that Jesus was, he knew that Jesus was no ordinary man. He, he didn't think that Jesus was just some extraordinary prophet. He believed that he was the life-giving Lord. And so Matthew places this account in his gospel when he's proving to his readers that Jesus is that promised Messiah. Jesus wasn't there just willing to follow the crowds. Look, it says, so Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. In verse 19, so after hearing from this man and hearing his heart and seeing his faith, you know, Jesus can see into your heart and see whether you have faith or not, whether you've truly believed. And he knew that this man believed and trusted him. And so Jesus was willing to leave the crowd. How many of these famous preachers today would be willing to leave a crowd to go and minister to somebody whose daughter had died? I was told the story of uh, the German Benny Hinn, who's, who's, who died a few years ago, but he used to go to Africa. And he would, there, I've seen videos on YouTube of like two million people there. And there was a story that I came across where a man's daughter had died, and he believed that if he could get to this, this healer, that his daughter could be raised to life. Well, of course, they're not going to let this man approach Reinhard Bonke, so... Uh, they're like, no, you can't do it. So he went and laid his daughter on the hood of his Mercedes because they flew his Mercedes from Germany to Africa. And of course, his daughter did not rise from the dead. But this man's daughter, we see, rose from the dead because Jesus is the giver of life. There is a lot of hucksters in the world today and none of them come even close to doing the things that Jesus did, even though they claim to. That's why we want to watch that movie in a couple of weeks. We talk some more about that. But Jesus wasn't there to wow the crowds. He wasn't saying, watch this. You know what he does? We'll see in a few minutes. He kicks everybody out. He kicked them all out. They weren't even worthy to, to observe the, the miracle that he was going to perform in raising this girl from the dead. But Jesus left the crowd to go care for this man who was broken. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. You're here this morning if you never trusted Christ, you've never been broken over your sin, you never realized how the desperate situation that you're in before a holy God that you can't appease, you can't satisfy his wrath by coming to church once in a while or by throwing money in the plate or by even being at the fall festival and doing something. No, it's only by faith in Jesus Christ and having a reliving relationship with him that you can be born again. If you have never done that this morning, God wants you to turn to Christ. He, he wants you to trust in him as, as Lord and Savior. And not to wait for a tragedy. Not wait for God to break you. To bring something into your life that will crush you and cause you to look up. To cause you to take your eyes off of yourself and look to him. Why not look to him now? In a state of mercy. In a position of grace that you're sitting in right this moment. God is giving you opportunity to repent this morning and to trust Christ. An opportunity that you may never have again. You, nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. Who's going to be in a car accident or have a heart attack. 
And so God is give, gives grace. God give, pour, is giving mercy to, right now to anyone here who does not know him. But if you don't and God has to crush you, he will get your attention. And so God got this man's attention. He allowed his daughter to die. But we see that God is the healer of the broken heart. Jesus restores those with a broken heart, those who know him. And so no matter what you go through in life, you know, my daughter-in-law, her brother died, uh, what was he, 15? A few months ago. And only he can comfort the heart of a parent who's lost a child like that. But if, you're, if you don't have Christ, I don't even know how you get through something like that. How, how do you find, uh, how do you even think in a normal way? You can't because we need the grace of God in, in those moments. And he comforts the broken heart. He restores the broken heart. And next we see he restores the broken body. In verses 20 and 21, it says, And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. Now again, Matthew leaves out a lot of the details that the other Gospels provide for us. Uh, but all of these accounts, all of these Gospel accounts, uh, Matthew and I mean Mark and Luke's account of this same situation, interrupt the story of Jesus uh, bringing life to Jairus' daughter with this story of this lady who came up to him. So in this miracle, we find another miracle. We kind of have two for the price of one. And, and, and I believe that it's here because Jesus is teaching Jairus, just trust me. Just trust me. Because now he's allowing a delay. You know, I'm sure Jairus wants to get home as quick as possible. But now here comes this lady who disrupts uh, Jesus' trip to his house. You know, he's on his way, and then all of a sudden, Jerry has to look back, wait, what's Jesus doing? He's back here talking to some lady. So imagine what was going through his mind at this, at this moment. But I believe that Jesus does this to teach Jairus again, even more so, to trust him. But this lady had a flow of blood, it says, for 12 years. Obviously, some sort of a menstrual problem. And she had not stopped bleeding for 12 solid years. Luke, the physician, uh, you know, Luke, in Luke's gospel, he was a physician. He said that she could not be healed by anyone. Mark, in his gospel, said that she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helpful at all, but had grown worse. I hear those complaints today. <clears throat> but, you know... Doctors couldn't help her. Medicine couldn't help her. The medicine of the day couldn't help her. Now, uh, you know, and also at this time, she didn't have uh, all the hygienic helps and things that we have today that can help people who, have, uh, who are bleeding and have all kinds of problems. And so she comes in a moment of desperation to Jesus. You know, when you're sick, no amount of money, there's no amount of money you wouldn't be willing to spend, would you, to get well, to stop being in pain every day and to stop being in agony and this lady was in agony not just because of her physical condition but because of her social position because according to the mosaic law in leviticus 15 she was ceremonially unclean in fact leviticus 15 25 says if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days other than at the time of her customary impurity or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity <clears throat> which now it's gone beyond that it's gone 12 years it says, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. And what does that mean? Well, every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. 
And whatever she sits on shall be unclean, as the uncleanness of her impurity. And whoever touches the things that shall, uh, whoever touches those things shall be unclean. He shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And it also goes on, talks about how if somebody even touches her, they would be considered unclean. So she was a, so, a social outcast. She was essentially a living leper, a person that nobody wanted to get close to. Nobody wanted to be in contact with her lest they be unclean and have to uh, distance themselves for seven days from other people. They didn't want to be cut off from religious activities and worship at the synagogue or at the temple. This woman would have not have been welcome in anyone's home because to invite her into your home would be to make your home unclean. It would have been unacceptable to walk up and give her a hug because now you become unclean for a number of days. So imagine the difficulty and the agony and the loneliness and the embarrassment that this lady experienced for 12 long years. But she believed that Jesus was the Messiah. She believed that Jesus could do something about her condition. And so she, she uh, plotted an approach in her heart that which she would come up to Jesus. And it says here in verse 20, she came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. So she thought, oh, if I come up behind him, it, I, it will be undetectable. No one will notice. There's all kinds of people around. But if I, I don't have to even touch him, but, but if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I will be rescued. Well, obviously she does, and she, and she, she comes up in confidence and trust, not in her own ability, not in in the clothing itself, but in Jesus. And she believed that he could heal her. But the garments at this time, you also must understand the garment that Jesus, that people wore at this time, they would also wear this cloth around them, kind of like a, uh, a shawl, and on each corner was a tassel. And the Lord commanded his people in the Torah to wear this, uh, this uh, piece of clothing with this tassel on it. And it was to be a reminder of the people to be obedient. And Numbers 15 tells us about this garment. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassel of the corners. So one blue thread going through it. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them and to do them that you may not follow the harlotry which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. I like how the ESV and NAS says, um, says about this verse. It says, so uh, that you do not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot. Because it's warning them about not following after your heart, which is a common theme we see on online today but the bible warns us against following the the impulses of our heart which could be wrong and sinful and obviously that's what happened for a lot of people so the lord has this tassel dangling in front of them that they would see all day you know walking around you bend over pick something up you see these these tassels are moving and he says in verse 40s they're to do this so that they would remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your god so jesus obviously also wore this garment the Pharisees actually in Matthew chapter 23 verse 5 prided themselves in their tassels and they even enlarged their tassels. They even had bigger ones. And so this lady may have thought, well, if I can just touch the, the edge of his garment, if I can touch the tassel, 
And there's some, maybe something uh, more significant in Jesus uh, and that he would make her well. Well, ultimately, uh, this lady, though she may have thought there had been some virtue in the tassel, she believed in more than just touching his garment. She believed that Christ had the power and the ability. And it says that Jesus turned around and when he saw her, said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that very hour. Now, Matthew leaves out a lot of the details. He focuses on her restoration and the power of Christ to restore her. That's really his focus. But Luke and, and Mark provide some really interesting details. Uh, they tell us that Jesus turned around and said, Who touched me? And then Peter says, like, Lord, who touched you? Like, the crowd is pressing on you. There's people all around. Like, everybody's touching you. Like, 20 people probably just touched you. And you want to know, like, who touched you? And Jesus said in Luke 8, 46, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. Now, Jesus didn't turn around and say, who touched me? Because he didn't know. Obviously, he, he knew. Jesus was omniscient as, as God. It wasn't that he was unaware, kind of like when God went into the garden after Adam and Eve sinned. He says, you know, where are you hiding? What are you doing? It's like, it's not that he didn't know. Jesus is here wanting the, wanting the woman to confess that she did it. He wants to bring about her confession, not to shame her, not to embarrass her or to declare her unclean, but to assure her, to assure her that she was healed. And so he looks at her when she identifies herself and he says, be of good cheer. In other words, don't be afraid. Your faith has made you well. And he calls her daughter. You can see the affection with which Christ speaks to this dear lady. He had compassion on her, understanding that for 12 years she suffered embarrassment and isolation and agony. And you know what's so amazing? Is that the word that Jesus used here and the same word that the lady uses here for heal is not the typical word that was used, but it was the word sozo, which also means to save. It was used in some passages to speak of healing and other passages to speak of salvation. In fact, in the very next chapter, in verse 22, it's, Jesus says, And you will be hated for all, talking to his disciples because he sent his disciples out to preach, he says, and you will be hated by all for my, for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Sozo. The same word that Jesus used to describe this lady's faith. He says, your faith has made you saved, has made you well. Not only was she made well physically, but she was made well spiritually. Her faith not only brought about her healing, but about her salvation. She was trusting in Christ, recognizing that he is who he said he is. She was both healed physically and spiritually. And if her faith was merely in a, in a tassel, that could have never taken place. No, her faith was not in the tassel or in the touch of, of the tassel. If it was just a tassel that she had to touch, she could have touched one of the Pharisees who had a bigger one. No, she was interested in Jesus's. And Jesus indicates here in verse 22 that she was not saved by the touch of her finger, but by her faith in him. She was not healed 
by her finger, but by her faith. Not in the faith in the tassel, but her faith in the Lord who wore the tassel. And so the Lord again uses great suffering in a person's life to bring them to himself. He used tragedy and desperation in the life of Jairus to bring him to himself. And now he uses great suffering in the life of this lady to draw him to himself. Having spent many years in social isolation and in agony, spending all her money, she's now a poor lady. She now has nothing. Because she spent everything, the Bible tells us, uh, Luke tells us, in order to be healed. And so in this passage, you see someone of great wealth who's, who Jesus uh, restores. And now you see someone who has nothing whom he restores. Jesus is no respecter of persons. Actually, we, we read it in Deuteronomy chapter 10 this morning. It says, God is not a respecter of persons. Jesus didn't come and and to look for the aristocrats in society and, and buddy up with them. No, he healed the down and out. He, healed the, he, he, he ministered to the outcasts. He showed compassion towards all. He saved those of great means and those who had nothing. And this lady had nothing. But she was in her lowest moment of life. Are you going to allow God to bring you to the lowest moment of your life in order to repent of your sin and trust him for salvation? If you're here this morning and you've, you've never been born again, are you going to wait until God crushes you? Or are you going to repent now, acknowledging your need of a Savior? All of us who are here this morning as Christians, we've come to that point in our life where we realize our spiritual poverty. Where we realize that apart from Christ, we were absolutely nothing. And we were in a desperate need of His salvation, which is what we heard this morning. And Christ opens the eyes of the blind and helps them to see their need for his spiritual healing. So imagine Jairus at this moment thinking, wow, you know, I hope Jesus is going to do something for my daughter. I believe that he's going to do something for my daughter. But Jesus took a moment to minister to someone who is down and out, a suffering, who is the outcast of society because he had compassion on her. Jairus might have been thinking as Martha did. Remember in, in when Lazarus died and Jesus shows up and Martha says in John eleven twenty one, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You got here too late. It's over. It's too late. There's nothing that can be done. And, of course, Jesus did, did not get there too late because he raised Lazarus as he raises Jairus' daughter, and the following verses. But this lady, sick for many years, was now instantaneously healed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What hope to those who are suffering today? And maybe you, you won't experience physical healing before you die. But you can be spiritually healed today if you've never trusted Christ. And if you are a Christian, you, should, you can rejoice and should rejoice that you know the Lord. That though you may suffer physically, you won't suffer eternally. Because your soul has been healed. And that is the most important healing that all of us need, is to have our sin dealt with. And that's what Jesus provides. That's what Jesus offers to sinners. Lastly, we look to the last act in these verses where Jesus restores life to the dead. We look, notice the escalation. We've already seen in chapter 8 how he healed the sick, he healed a leper, he cast out demons. 
He spoke to the winds and the seas, and they obeyed him. He cast a legion of demons out into 2,000 swine. He, he forgave a paralytic who couldn't move, who was lying motionless on a mat. Told him that you're forgiven of your sins, and by the way, to show everybody that you're forgiven, get up and walk out of here. Go home. And so you can see an escalation in the power that Jesus manifested. And then he calls Matthew out of his tax booth to follow him, and, and Matthew surrenders to Christ and follows him in obedience and, and faith. And then we saw that Jesus, you know, and in, in, in that story, Jesus saves the worst of sinners. He saves one of the most despicable people in society, a tax collector who plundered other people and robbed them and lied to them. And now he comes to this man. First of all, he comes to a man who could do nothing to save, help himself. And then he comes to a woman or a woman comes to him who uh, doctors couldn't help. He comes to people who society has given up on. But now Jesus comes to this man's house. He says, when Jesus came to the ruler's house, the flute players and the noisy crowd were wailing. And he said, make room, for the girl is not dead, but is sleeping. And they ridiculed him. So now he's coming. He's coming to raise this girl from the dead. Uh, so we see an escalation. Now, not only does Jesus heal someone who's sick, but he gives someone life who has died from their sickness. Who has ever done that before? But he gets to this house, and there's these mourners, these people who are playing the flute, and they're wailing. Uh, now, the way they went about mourning death in ancient Israel is much different than we do in our society. You know, today if somebody dies... Uh, you know, they take them to the funeral home and they, you know, you embalm the person and you fix them up and cut their hair and uh, you make them look nice. You have some quiet music or no music. It's, it's a time of quietness, but not in Israel, not in this day. It was a hot climate. The, the Jews did not embalm people once they died. And so because of that, you know, in a hot climate, their bodies could, would decay quickly and so they had about a 24-hour window in which they would bury people. Uh, so when Jesus, and so when a person died, they immediately started mourning. And they had professional mourners. They would hire professional mourners to come in and to mourn the death of that person. And so they would hire flutists, flute players, and women who would come in and who would wail, who would sing, and who would, who would ch chant out the person's name and mourn their departure. So it was really the complete opposite of our, our culture. But they did this to express grief and lamentation. And there was three ways that they did this. Uh, one was by tearing or rendering of the garment. Uh, second, they would hire these women to come in and wail loudly the name of the person who had died. And then the third was through these flutists. Now, it was said in um, Jewish tradition that uh, a poor person had to have a minimum of two flutists and one wailing singer, one wailing woman. But Roman law placed a, a limit on uh, the number of flutists uh, of ten, so they would not be too noisy and, and too disturbing and, and too intense. But Jesus gets here, and it, notice it says there was a crowd. He told the crowd uh, to leave, and it says, but when the crowd was put outside, so there was a, there was a large number of, of wailers and flutists. And they were carrying on, and so obviously, we don't know how long it had been since this girl died, but it had been long enough that 
already present at the house were these wailers, and they were already mourning and lamenting the death of this little girl who was 12 years old. But Jesus gets here and he says, make room. In other words, get out of here because now it's time to, to, to help this girl. And so he tells them that they must leave. He says, for the girl is not dead, but is sleeping. And so they mocked him. They're like, Jesus, you know, this girl, you're telling us she's not dead. She's asleep. Like, uh, can't you recognize a dead person when you see one? Uh, you know, this is what we do. We only mourn people who have died. And we wouldn't be here playing our flutes and carry on if this girl wasn't already dead. So they think that this guy is basically a moron. Like, why would he tell them that she's only sleeping? Well, Jesus is just using the word sleep as a euphemism for being dead. uh, Because he was about to awake her. He was about to raise her up. And the same type of language Jesus used with when Lazarus died. In John chapter 11, this is when Jesus came, he says to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps. Now, Lazarus had already been dead for a while, remember? He said, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I, but I go that I may wake him up. And there was commotion like, what do you mean he's asleep? And so in verse 14, it says, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Okay. Uh, but he used the word sleep, verse 20, he used the word sleep to indicate that it's only temporary. It's as though he is sleeping. It's as though this girl is sleeping because her death is temporary. So this crowd, this large number had to go because they were, not, they were not worthy to be in the presence of this glorious miracle. These people who mocked Christ weren't worthy to be in his presence and witness his life-saving power. And so both the lady with the hemorrhage and this girl without, were without hope in this world, but not when Jesus is there. Not when Jesus invades your life. You are no longer without hope in this world. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, hopefully Jesus is invading your heart right now with conviction of sin and to recognize your need for him. This girl just needed a touch of the master. She, they, she just needed Christ. She didn't need anyone else. And as with, a, as with a woman with a hemorrhage who was not to be touched, she was considered an outcast. Uh, anybody who was to touch that lady was considered unclean. So it was with touching a dead person. To touch a dead person, you render yourself unclean. But what does Jesus do? Jesus touches her. He is not afraid to touch a sinner. When Jesus touches a sinner, he doesn't become defiled. The sinner becomes cleansed. The sinner becomes healed. In this case, the sinner becomes raised up. And Mark says, when he took her by the hand... He said, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Mark 15, 41. The next verse, and Mark tells us, immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. I mean, who wouldn't be amazed by that? Who wouldn't be absolutely blown away to witness such a miracle? And so verse 26 of Matthew's gospel says, and the report of this went out into all that land. And Jesus actually told the parents, you know, uh, you know, don't go out and tell anybody, but they couldn't help it. And so they went out and told everyone. The only people who were present in that room was the girl's parents and Matthew. I mean, sorry, um, and that, the only ones who were present were Peter, James, and John and the girl's parents. Five people witnessed this miracle. 
but it became known throughout all the land. No one in Capernaum or Galilee had ever witnessed such wonder-working power. And so what Jesus demonstrates is that he has the power over every human enemy. What are your, what are your greatest enemies as a human? What is your greatest enemy as a Christian? Sin, Satan, and death, right? Those are our greatest enemies, and Jesus has conquered them all. That's why we, when we have eternal life, it's eternal because we will be with him. He conquered all of those through his resurrection. And Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, and all of us are going to die unless Christ comes back first, though he may die, he shall live. Because he's defeated all of our enemies. And so, greater than healing these, this lady physically and raising this girl up physically was healing them spiritually and giving them spiritual life. And that's what happens when a person places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. Sin is our greatest enemy. Satan is our most active enemy. But Jesus has conquered sin, Satan, and death. And so you should trust him today. If you want to have eternal life, if you want to have your sins forgiven, and to be in right fellowship with God, you must know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. So what are we to make of all of this? Now what should we do? How should we respond? Well, remember that Jesus brings healing and hope in the midst of despair. So no matter what you may go through in your life, no matter what tragedy or difficulty you may experience, Jesus heals the broken heart. Jesus will be with you. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And though sickness may come, sickness may overtake you and probably going to overtake all of us. All of us are going to die at some point, whether by sickness or some other way. You know, we find our hope in Jesus. All our hope is in Jesus. So we turn to him. We remember that. We, we take comfort and consolation in times of suffering because he is our hope and he is our, our ultimate escape. And then number two, Jesus possesses the power over all of our enemies. And as Matthew said in chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you see and you, you hear. Because remember John the Baptist, his disciple, John was wondering like, is he really the Messiah or another? So he sends his disciples and Jesus says to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. All these things Jesus did. And we're going to see the blind see and the deaf hear and, and, and mute speak next week. But Jesus is the Messiah. He, he, the, this, these were authenticating marks. These were identifiers that this man is the Messiah. These are the prophecies prophesied of him in the Old Testament. And Matthew says, look, he fulfills them in the New Testament. And then lastly, you can trust Jesus with your life now and with your eternity. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you, but it's faith in a strong Savior. So remember that. If, so if you've never trusted Christ this morning, I invite you to talk to myself, or Pastor Chris, or one of the other pastors here. We would love to show you from the Word of God how you can know Christ and to know that you have eternal life and that your faith is placed in the right object, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in any works that you can do, 
but faith in him alone. And as Christians, we should take joy knowing that no matter what we go through in life, Jesus is our hope, and he brings hope out of, he brings hope out of darkness and despair. He is a compassionate 